Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to this week's episode. Back by popular demand, we have three more questions that prudent investors ask. For the sake of time, we're going to keep this episode dense. The questions we're going to cover include, why should I invest outside the U.S.? What is the average return I should expect from my stocks? And how does the stock market perform when interest rates rise? A lot of investors want to know, why should I invest outside of the United States? We've all probably heard the old idiom, warning against the danger of committing all of your resources into just one area. Don't put all of your eggs into one basket. If you wouldn't make a concentrated investment in one single stock, why would you limit your investment opportunities to just one country? Granted, the United States stock market is currently the biggest in the world. It makes up 57% of the world opportunity currently within the stock market. Our domestic markets represent over 3,650 companies, and a market capitalization of about $42 trillion. While that is significant, if you limit your investments to just the United States, you'll miss out on 7,418 companies in the developed ex-US markets, as well as the other 8,716 companies in the emerging markets. Population size and gross domestic product, or GDP, may not be the most important factor when considering where to invest. For example, Japan is a relatively small country when we're just looking at the landmass, but the country accounts for about 7% of the world's stock market value and includes many familiar names like Sony and Toyota. Sweden outperformed the United States in 2020 and is home to many companies that we enjoy like Spotify, Volvo, H&M, and of course, Ikea. There's no evidence that just one or a few specific developed countries are expected to outperform. I'll include the link in the show notes to an illustrative table in which each color represents one of the 22 different developed countries over a 20-year time frame. What the table really illustrates is just how random country returns can actually be. The scattered colors suggest it's nearly impossible to predict which country will be at the top of the following year's performance reports. For example, would you have predicted 20 years ago that Denmark would be the top performer in the developed markets? From 2001 through 2020, Denmark experienced an annualized return of 11.7%, while the United States had an annualized return of just 7%. That's not to say you should now go put all of your money in Danish companies, but rather a globally diversified portfolio would have positioned you well to capture those returns when they were available. Just because a country does well one year doesn't mean that it will continue to outperform in subsequent years. For example, Austria experienced the highest returns for the developed markets in 2017, but fell to the worst performer in 2018. Over the past few years, U.S. stocks have outpaced international and emerging markets. But just because U.S. stocks have outperformed non-U.S. stocks recently does not mean that these short-term returns are reliable indicators of the future. 
Recent performance may have led some to forget the lost decade from 2000 through to the end of 2009, in which the S&P had a total cumulative return of negative 9.1%. However, the investment experience was much more favorable for those that had taken advantage of a global investment opportunity. For example, the MSCI World XUS Index net dividends had a cumulative return of 17.47%, and the Emerging Markets Index net of dividends had a 154% return. Let me say that again. Over an entire decade, the S&P 500 was down 9.1%, while the Emerging Markets during the same time frame was up almost 155%. Headlines may warn about investing in other countries for one reason or another based upon whatever the crisis of the day is. Recently, the attention is circled around to the vaccine rollout globally. However, expectations around a country's future risks and rewards have already been incorporated into today's market prices. There's no objective or definitive correct amount of non-U.S. stock that should be in your portfolio. If you limit the geographic exposure of your portfolio, you're limiting your opportunity set which may increase your risk and decrease the benefits of diversification. Concentrating a portfolio in any one country can lead to large variations in return. A global opportunity set can help provide a more consistent investment experience. By diversifying, you may be able to reduce the devastating losses associated with investing in just a handful of stocks or a single country. How do you avoid getting egg on your face? Diversify. Diversification across companies, sectors, company size, relative price, and countries can increase the reliability of your outcomes and can help capture a broad range of investment returns. Let's move on to question number two. What is the average return that I should expect from my stocks? Well, that's a very simple question, but unfortunately, it doesn't result in an equally simple answer. The best way to answer this question is by acknowledging the uncommon average of stock market returns. Since 1926, the U.S. stock market has returned 10% a year on average, but the road to the 10% can be incredibly bumpy. Returns in any particular year have ranged from as high as 54% to as low as negative 43%. In fact, what's even more insightful is that the S&P 500 had a return within plus or minus 2 percentage points of the 10% average only six times out of the past 95 years. That's just 6% of the time that you would have experienced an outcome that was within plus or minus two percentage points of the average. The average return often establishes an emotional expectation that you're bound to be disappointed with over the long term. Understanding the actual range of outcomes may actually increase the odds of a successful investment experience for you, your family, and your heirs over the long run. Let's reframe this answer so that we can understand it more deeply. This uncommon average associated with the stock market is similar to the uncommon average associated with LeBron James. LeBron has averaged 27 points, 7 assists, and 7 rebounds a game during his entire career. He's played over 1,400 NBA games in his 16 years and has yet to finish a game exactly with 27 points, 7 assists, and 7 rebounds. Though the historical average of the U.S. stock market since 1926 is around 10% a year, Past performance doesn't guarantee future performance, nor does the actual average investment return show up very often in outcomes. The stock market returns are always nonlinear. Bonds and alternatives with lower volatility can be the ballast to the portfolio, which will provide us the near-term certainty that clients are looking for. Let's move on to a third question. It's related to a lot of the more recent 
inflation reports indicating that the consumer price index is increasing. So the question is, how does the stock market perform when interest rates rise? Many believe a rise in interest rates is a reflection of positive economic expectations from investors, while others believe it's more driven by inflation concerns or expectations. In reality, it's more likely a combination of all the available information. Pundits often make the case that rising interest rates could lead to higher borrowing costs, which could exacerbate debt burdens and make it difficult for businesses to grow. The case could also be made that higher interest rates reflect investor sentiments for faster growth, which could bring forth a concern for increased inflation. Unlike bond prices, which are inversely related to interest rates, stock prices could rise or fall with changes in interest rates. For stocks, it can go either way because a stock price depends both on future cash flows to investors and the discount rate they apply to those expected cash flows. When interest rates rise, the discount rate could increase, which in turn could cause the stock price to fall. However, it's also possible that when interest rates change, expectations about future cash flows also change. Therefore, depending upon the sign and magnitude of any cash flow effect and the discount rate effect, theoretically, it's unclear what the net effect of interest rate changes could have on a stock price. For example, in months when the 10-year treasury rose, stock returns have been as low as negative 17%, but as high as positive 15%. In months when rates fell, returns have ranged from negative 23% to as high as plus 16%. Given that there are other rates besides just the 10-year treasury and that interest rates on different points of the yield curve don't always move in perfect lockstep, we also examined the relationship of short-term interest rates and stocks but found similar results. For investors who have a strong belief in the path interest rates will take in the future, the desire to change their stock investments really should be tempered. Even with perfect knowledge about future interest rate changes, one still wouldn't have enough guidance about subsequent investment returns to change their strategy appropriately. Instead, staying invested and avoiding the temptation to make changes based upon short-term predictions may actually increase the likelihood of consistently capturing what the stock market has to offer in any interest rate environment. It's worth noting that economic pundits have actually been calling for interest rates to rise going back to 2011 and 2012 following the Great Recession. Even more recently, people were forecasting rapidly rising interest rates back in the first quarter of 2020, just before the 10-year Treasury hit an all-time low of 0.318% back in March of 2020. Well, that concludes this week's podcast. Hopefully you took something away from the Q&A and micro lessons. We'll be back next week with some more new content. So until then, be well.